Okay. We shall continue our studies in Isaiah this morning. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying to two groups of people. Number one, the people of Israel before him and the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, who were before him at this time. And these would also be for those that would be taken into captivity into Babylon uh, about 100 years or so later. So we have to keep that in mind that he's prophesying to both. And so we had gotten, gotten to Isaiah chapter 56 and we last week we covered most of that but we still have about four verses. Now remember God is saying in effect in chapter 56 get ready all the earth for my great salvation. He has sent Jesus to atone for the sins that was prophesied in 53. In 54, we see the worldwide expansion of the church. In 55, we see God's call going out through Isaiah. And in 56, we're seeing that God is saying, in effect, get ready for such a great salvation. And we got up to verse 9 last week. So we are going to be looking at verses 9 through 12 in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verses 9 through 12. Any questions on anything before we get started? Okay. I'm going to ask Mike if he'll read those verses for us. Okay. All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy, they are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. Okay. Now, the cursed life of Isaiah's unfaithful leaders, that's your blank there, is shown in these verses. They're unfaithful leaders. Now, God revert, I've got in your notes, God refers to them as ravenous beasts. Uh, in verse 9. I've changed my view on that. That's the ravenous beast that come to God's people, God's people who have no protection because their leaders are worthless. So beasts come to devour God's people and they can do it because they have worthless leaders. <clears throat> now, these leaders that Isaiah is uh, prophesying is uh, telling us about verse 10 tells they're blind it says though his watchmen are blind okay also in verse 10 he says they are without knowledge they're blind and they are without knowledge so here again we see the importance especially of leaders having knowledge it's a shame when churches call people to pastor them 
and they don't have the proper education, they don't have the proper background, they don't know anything about the Bible hardly. And we see pastors everywhere that really should not be up in the pulpit preaching or teaching. And that was the case here. And without knowledge, Isaiah, I mean, excuse me, Malachi picks up on this about how the priest, even in that time, after the captivity, after the restoration, after the captivity, they were supposed to watch over knowledge, to keep knowledge, and they didn't do it. So if a pastor or a leader has no knowledge, then they should not be trying to lead the people. I know that pastors like powers, they have to have a seminary education. They have to pass all kinds of tests. They have to, <clears throat> and um, before a committee and then before the whole presbytery. And uh, when I became an elder, I had to, I was, I had a oral examination before I became an elder. So the God's people should make sure that those that lead them are qualified to do it and we'll be able to protect them against ravenous beasts that come in. Because these people sure were not protected against ravenous beasts. Yep. Yeah. Reminds me, I'm just thinking about this, uh, how I guess you'd say in the, the height of the uh, Middle Ages and the Roman Catholic Church in Europe, um, I'll just say with England because that's where I read about it, uh, and, and taking place there but one of the many problems leading up to the Reformation was that you had priests who would say the mass in Latin and they were illiterate they couldn't, I mean they had memorized it so they could repeat the words and get through the service but other than that they didn't, even, they didn't really understand what they were saying a lot of them didn't even understand Latin so, yeah. another example we live in a much better time than they did but it could be better that's always been important for Reformed and Presbyterian uh, people to have educated preachers. Right. We do have that guarded in the Reformed churches pretty well. Not perfect, but pretty well. Okay, and <clears throat> they're without knowledge, they're without understanding in verse 11. Uh, says they are shepherds who have no understanding. And verse 11 also shows they are worthless. They're like worthless dogs. And also it says they are ones who dull their consciences instead of face reality. They drown their sorrows in alcohol. That's what verse 12 is saying. Instead of facing up to their problems, they live a life of drunkenness and will not face up. So they are totally worthless. All right, in your notes there for verses 10 and 11, God refers to them as dumb dogs or silent dogs or how did the New American Standard say? No, nothing. Oh, mute dogs. Mute dogs. Dumb dogs. Greedy dogs and Geneva Yeah, that, that's another one too. Yeah. So... I mean, that's another one that this one has. That, that's just one of the adjectives, yeah. So God refers to them as this. Dogs are, right, they're supposed to protect the house, right? Yeah, there's, you know, if somebody comes, they're supposed to bark. 
<clears throat> However, all these dogs do is eat their owners out of house and home. It says they have a in the ESV they have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. Is that like your dogs? <laughs> they are like dogs that eat their owner out of house and home. They never bark when they need to bark. And they're all around useless. These leaders that Isaiah is talking about, they are fat, dumb, and useless. And as Georgia fans are fond of saying, let the big dog eat. That's all these dogs would do is eat. Uh, I wonder if we were going to get a Georgia reference in here. <laughs> let the big dog eat. So, yeah, these were worthless dogs, Worth, worthless leaders. All right, and there in your notes, these leaders are useless in God's kingdom. They have put their own interest ahead of the interest of the people that they've been appointed to serve. They make themselves ripe for, ju ripe for judgment. They are ripe for judgment. And we're going to see they're going to be even more ripe for judgment in Isaiah 57. So that's the status of Israel's leaders in the time of Isaiah and really probably all the way up to now in them. A lot of the churches. Anybody have any comments on Isaiah 56? Okay, so let's move on to Isaiah 57. And I need somebody to read the first two and the last two verses of Isaiah 57. Oh, you can do it. You were looking up at me, so I'll pick on you. First and last two. Yeah. The righteous man perishes and no one lays at the heart. The devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in the uprightness. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss out mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. All right, so there we have a contrast of the future of the righteous and the future of the wicked. So in your notes there, this chapter shows the future of the righteous and the wicked. <clears throat> all right, Isaiah shows the people, first of all, the judgments caused by their wicked leaders. Righteous men are taken away. What a curse for the wicked. What is a curse for the wicked is a blessing for the righteous man. So one of God's judgments on the wicked is taking the righteous man out of their midst. I still think the one reason David Bonson died so, uh, Greg Bonson died so early I think at age 46, something like that, is God was taking a man that was faithful to his law and bringing a judgment upon those antinomians that hissed at God's law every day. It was a curse for them that Bonson was taken away. 
Bonson is very convincing on God's law being applicable in every area of life nowadays. And they needed to hear that. Then they won't hear it again. Mike? Still left us a huge body of knowledge and work. Mm -hmm. I think I, I think I read a thousand, a thousand recordings. Yeah, lots of different writings. We still have those. There was still a lot more good he could have done. And it's not only him; it's other people too. So one judgment on the wicked would be taking away the righteous. John Calvin states, We ought therefore to consider diligently the works of the Lord, both in the life and the death of the righteous, but especially in their death, by which the Lord calls them away to a better life, that they may be rescued from those afflictions which the wicked must be plunged. Okay, Take away the righteous, the wicked are ready for judgment. The wicked do not realize, in your notes, that they increase their rightness for judgment when the righteous are gone. Let's turn to Genesis 18. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But we're all familiar with this story, this, story, this account, where... Abraham prays to God and says, you won't judge Sodom. You won't destroy Sodom if there's 50 righteous men with you. Forbid it. You're the judge of all the earth. You, you will do right. God says, no, I won't destroy them for the sake of 50. And he whittles God down all the way to five. You will destroy them if there's five righteous, would you? God says, no, I wouldn't. So you take righteous people away. God is going to judge what's left. Remember we talked about Justin Martyr's second apology. He wrote an apology to Marcus Aurelius saying it's only because of us Christians that God doesn't destroy the world. And I think he's right. Aurelius didn't like that too much. Justin Martyr didn't last very long. <laughs> but he got his point across. And the wicked do not realize that, that when the righteous that they persecute are taken away from them, they are in deep trouble. Okay. Um, any other comments on that? And when the righteous are removed, they go to paradise. They go to heaven. They're with the Lord. They have peace. He enters into peace, verse 2 says, and rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Okay. Next we will read verses 3 through 10. And uh, I will have... Um, Alanda, if you'll read that for us. 3 through 10 of chapter 57. Okay. But you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom 
Whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression and offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust amongst the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for those things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your, your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the, and the doorpost you have set up your memorial, for, deserting me, you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide, you have made a covenant for yourself with them, you have loved their bed, you have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied, multiplied your perfumes. You sent your, your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You have wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Okay, <clears throat> wickedness abounds more and more. Well, they have no leaders, they have no defense, so wickedness abounds more and more, especially spiritual adultery. In your notes, that blank is spiritual adultery. This is very suggestive language. If you want to read this passage in the Christian Standard Bible, you would get some kind of idea of it. Um... Isaiah lists the wicked things they are doing, making themselves ripe for judgment. He is presenting a covenant lawsuit against them here. These are the things you've done. They have totally ignored God's law. They've broken all of the commandments. So they have no right to expect anything good from God. Although they're going to get some good from God, they have no right to expect it. All right, that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to go into each one of those verses. We've been through these things before. All right, verses 11 through 13. We will have Jen, if you will read those for us. Whom did you dread and fear, so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your let your collection go. Okay, sorry. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Okay. So, according to these verses, their time for judgment is coming. First of all, they have forgotten God in verse 11. 
Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me? Okay, so they've lied. I mean, they have forgotten God. And their so-called righteous acts, righteous deeds are filthy. Verse 12. And he says, he'll tell them later, your righteous acts are like filthy rags. They, they think they're doing righteous. That's because they don't know God's law. That's because their leaders are unrighteous. Okay, and that's going to lead them to the fact that the wicked will be defenseless against judgment. God says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. You trust in them. Let's see what they can do. Even just the wind will carry them all off. Breath will take them away. You need to take refuge in me. And then finally he says, uh, those trusting in God will not incur his judgment, but they will have blessing. He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Okay. Now finally, verses 14 and 15. Laura, will you read that for us, please? God says, rebuild the road, clear away the rocks and stones so my people can return from captivity. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Okay. All right, verses 14 and 15. All right, God will now come to the righteous. He said that in verse 13. Yeah, 13, they're going to have blessings and he's going to come to the righteous here. And he commands that every obstacle be removed. In the ESD, it says, thus, uh, or every obstruction. It says, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from the people's way. So every obstruction, every obstacle will be removed only by God's grace. And he makes a statement about his greatness. He says, thus says the high one who is, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, high and exalted, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Now inhabiting eternity is saying that he lives forever, from everlasting to everlasting. He inhabits eternity. So he makes a statement about his greatness. He declares his glory. He is the high and lofty one. He declares his eternity. He inhabits eternity. And he lets us know of his special, special dwelling place. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, which would be heaven, right? That's the special place of God's presence. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. All right, so he is telling them to remember who their God is. And he is nothing like the worthless idols they've been depending on. 
you're depending on worthless idols that the wind carries away. I'm the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Who would you rather trust in? But you have been so stupid, you're trusting in those worthless idols that even the wind carries away. Okay. <clears throat> and now he lays... Let, let's have some... Uh, let's start back here with Audrey. Uh, Psalm 138, verse 6. And then over next, James 4, 6, and 7. Psalm 34, 18. James 4, 6, and 7. And then Psalm 34, 18. And Psalm 51, 17. Now, if you want to have fellowship with God, if you want to know God better, if you want God to dwell in you and not be angry with you, then this is what he requires, that you have a humble and contrite spirit as your notes say. It's for humility. Let's have Psalm 138, verse 6 read. For though the Lord is high, he regards those who lowly, the regards the lowly, but the haughty of the proud, he knows from afar. James 4, 6 and 7. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want to be in opposition to God, you just be a proud person. And if you want his favor, be a humble person. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Okay, for contriteness, Psalm, what? Psalm 34, 18. A broken heart and a contrite spirit. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. He will not despise a broken and contrite spirit. So God dwells in a high and holy place. He is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity, but He dwells with a contrite people and humble. Okay, any comments on that? Finally, verses 16 through 21. <clears throat> I'll have Michelle if you'll read that for us. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me, and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. 
and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of his lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Okay, in these verses, God states that he, is, he has been angry and afflicted. And angry and afflicted. And has afflicted them. But he is coming, but that's coming to an end. Remember in Isaiah chapter 40, it started out with God speaking peace and comfort to Israel. All right, in verse 19... God states that his peace is for all who come to him. It's for those that are far away and those that are close by. Could be he's talking about to those that he is speaking to right in front of him in that day and to those that will be in Babylon in 100 years or so. Far away and close by. And in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is <clears throat> writing to the Ephesians, <clears throat> he's obviously talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And those verses I have listed there, Ephesians 2, 11 through 19, totally destroy any concept of dispensationalism. If you want proof that dispensationalism is a heresy, Ephesians 2, 11 through 19 <clears throat> is rock-solid proof. God's peace is the same for the Jew and for the Gentile. All right. In contrast to the, the wicked have no peace, but they remain at war with God. From the moment of their conception and throughout all eternity, they have been promised that they will have no peace. There is no peace, says my God for the wicked. The war they wage with God is as constant and as, as certain as the waves on the seashore. They have no peace. They will always be at war with God. And that is for sure unless they repent of their sins and turn to Christ. All right, that's all I have for chapter 57. Anybody want to add anything to that? Okay, Kim, will you close us in prayer, please?